It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors annual sales event now on. One-off price reductions and special APR finance available during this event. Call in today and save thousands at Blackstone Motors, Drada and Dundalk. You're very welcome to Tuesday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Packed two hours of chat, so let's get straight to it. Seven years ago in 2012, Jack Cavanagh was on holiday in Portugal with a group of friends. On the beach, he dived into the surf and in that fateful moment, his life changed forever. Jack was paralysed from the armpits down, facing an uncertain future. But what's happened subsequently in Jack's life is simply remarkable. And he's with me on late lunch today and I'm delighted to have him. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Do you recall that moment ever still when you dived into the sea? Can you remember that? Or do you get flashbacks to it? So... The moment, the moment is really, it's the moment of, a, of an event and the only thing that gives it meaning is the meaning that I choose to attach to it. And yes, I do remember it very, very well. It's crystal clear. Um, I used to work as a lifeguard and a windsurfing instructor and that's how I'd spent that entire summer down the west of Ireland. This was the first day of a holiday with some friends, as you'd mentioned, and as I'd done so many times that summer and on that day, I ran down the beach dived in it was one more swim type of an idea before we go and I hit a sandbank um, and I didn't lose consciousness but I was very lucky that I had so much experience in the water because I was very aware of what had just happened and I knew what the implications were um, yet I couldn't move I was face down in the water and it's it's strange in a moment like that my experience was that time kind of slowed down um, and you become incredibly present and uh, they say or you, you might only see this sort of happen on, on, on TV show or something where your whole life flashes in front of your eyes well it's kind of one of those moments and at that time uh, I saw my family, I saw the girl I was seeing at that time and, and those kind of things were very important to me at that time and things became very simple and time just slowed down um, I was about a minute face down in the water and I was aware that I was running out of oxygen um, and at that point my friend Stephen put his hand under my shoulder and pulled me up and uh, when I told him the implications of what had happened he got such a fright that he actually dropped me back in the water so I had this moment of feeling that I was saved and then maybe not <laughs> How you can... <laughs> 
okay. you know, smile about that at, at this point in time. But I suppose, what else can you do? Mm. It's a fact what happened to you. From there, though, you were in a serious condition to get serious about it. Y- yeah. Your life was in danger and you were airlifted to the hospital in Portugal. Yeah, so I think at, at that time... Things things happen quickly. I was taken from the water by my friends, lifeguards, ambulance arrived, the whole shebang. And uh, really, as the ambulance doors closed and my friends were left behind, that's when the fear sets in, you know. And the next time I really woke up was about a day later. Um, I was in intensive care in Lisbon. Mm. And um, at that stage... Um, I gradually became aware of my surroundings. So my head was in a metal cage. I sort of almost looked like Frankenstein uh, with weights hanging off the back to straighten out my spine. I had tubes going down my throat to keep me breathing. Um, I was quite delirious from from the pain medications and my body was strapped down. And as as I gradually became aware of my surroundings, um, one of my best friends, Gareth, walked around the bottom of my bed and he'd obviously pulled the short straw to be the first one in to see me. And I'm greeted by this, like, smiling but tear-filled face. And in that moment, it was actually me that started comforting him. Um, and I couldn't speak, but I mouthed the words, it's going to be okay. And that was, that's an early in- inclination to the mindset that I, bro- that I approached it with. Were you thinking even at that stage? Because you said you were suffering with the side effects of of the medication you were getting and obviously being delirious, you're in and out of things, but you recognised him, you saw him and you were able to communicate with him. Were you dealing mentally even at that stage with a scenario that you expected? So, look, you're never expecting something like this, but I think the, the, the way that you live your life up to a point like that has a big impact on how you're going to respond. Um... And I was always very much an active guy. Um, from a young age, I played rugby in Navan, and then when I went on to secondary school, I played played rugby um, there. Um, I was really involved with running and tennis, Gaelic, soccer, hurling, like anything I could get my hands on. Um, but I, I had a lot of private pursuits myself as well, so running being one of those where it's a solo pursuit, and windsurfing was my big passion. And in all of those different areas of sport, you you learn a certain amount of, of resilience and self-reliance in the solo sports and and um, I would have found myself in leadership positions in any team that I was involved in and so I naturally gravitated towards that kind of thing and I became very good at sort of pushing myself into the stretch zone um, of saying okay how can we make the best of this scenario um, and that's really the approach that I took um, as a teenager uh, like any teenager uh, I was pushing out against the limits of my comfort zone and my parents and my teachers and anyone else that was around me and you ask yourself a lot of questions during that time and I questioned everything and I came up with a lot of good answers and I have this memory just before I had the injury a couple of weeks previously of being down the west and cycling off to the beach myself, a beach down in Belmullet, and finding myself on a beach called Ellie, Ellie, on Ellie Bay. And when I look back down the beach, the only footprints in the sand are my own, 
and I look out over the breaking waves and the sun is setting and I just start smiling because at that moment it was the first moment where I was really aware that I was content with a lot of the answers that I'd come up with and who I was becoming. Then fast forward a couple of weeks and I literally have the rug pulled out from me. But having gotten to that point of asking myself a lot of big questions and and finding answers to them, I was much more on a steady footing when I was faced with adversity then. Simply amazing. Amazing, may I say. You spend two weeks in Lisbon Hospital and then you are flown home to the matter in Dublin Mm -hmm. before moving to the Rehabilitation Institute. Yeah. When was it confirmed to you the news you didn't want to hear? Yeah, so really, really you get that um, when you get to rehab or back to Ireland. Um, they give you the odds. It's not it's not the news you ever want to get. Um, but very quickly, I was um, giving them feedback <laughs> that... Uh, that maybe they didn't really understand my vision for the future. <laughs> uh, maybe I didn't word it as nicely as that. I can just <laughs> see that. I can picture it. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, that, that that wasn't going to be the kind of approach and the lifestyle that I was going to adopt. Um, I was told things like that I would need the assistance of two people to do nearly everything for the rest of my life. Um, all the things that I couldn't do as they kind of have to lay out the worst case scenario, uh, were named and uh, and I just chose not to buy into that. And systematically, I, I said about uh, uh, reconstructing my life. Um, you know, after any kind of a traumatic event, we all compartmentalise things and we unbox and deal with things as we're, as we're ready and able to as we go through the different stages of grief that naturally arise at different times we'll find strength and as I found my strength again I started to unbox these bits and pieces as time went on and I gradually started defying most of what I was told Um, uh, which when I go back to those doctors now they're only delighted to hear that um, uh, that they were wrong you know (laughs) which is nice (laughs) you know when you mention those moments where you have grief do you still have moments where you have to deal with the scenario you find yourself in today? Yeah, um, and I think after any trauma that anyone experiences. Now, trauma, in my case, it was a physical trauma. Mm. For someone else, it may be an emotional trauma. Um, someone they love dying, um, a, a re- relationship breakup. It might be coming on hard times financially. These are all forms of trauma. and And... For me, um, it was important to grieve it. Um, you know, you go through the different stages of bargaining and accept, and ultimately acceptance. Um, and at different points, it comes back up, and it's it's necessary because you ha- you grieve in stages, and you go to deeper levels the more time goes on. Um, and they say time is the best thing for healing. It's it's probably true. Um, now, I think another thing that was very important and I'm very grateful for is I was brought up in a family where communication channels were always open. Um, um, so that coupled with my willingness to go there um, and talk um, at different times. Now, there was periods when when I did get into a pretty dark place and 
to the extent where I wouldn't for for days and weeks make even eye contact with people because I really just didn't want them to have any inkling of the pain I was in. You know, that kind of existential angst um, that we all experience at different times. And, And to a certain extent, we do have to process it on our own. But I was lucky that when I was ready there was someone there to listen um, and to help me work through that. And and even now, recently, I've had an event that brought the whole thing back up in a strange way, but also gave me massive catharsis and closure in another. Um, and so it, it happens in stages. Mm. You talk about telling the doctors, you know, I'm going to do this my way and I'm mm. going to defy you guys, and you have... But how long, tell me this, how long did you spend in the rehab? So I spent seven months in rehab, um, uh, two weeks in intensive care in Portugal. Um, I got really unwell when I came back to the matter and um, was touch and go. Uh, but I got through that and I spent about four weeks in the matter and then seven months in, out in rehab. It's a long span in a- mm. anyone's book, but... You all the time were pressing on and pushing on. I, I see this about you. Mm. This is unbelievable. You returned to Trinity. You were in Trinity yeah. s- studying pharmacy into your second year when this happens. You you were back in Trinity within 13 months. Hey, Jack, how did you do it? Yeah, so this was one of the big things that really helped me through that period. Um, to give your listeners... Um, who can't see me at perspective, um, I have about 15% muscle function now, which which means my shoulders, biceps and wrists function. Um, so I'm paralysed from the armpits down. Uh, I use a manual wheelchair. Um, I drive. I travel extensively. I'm solo most of, most of my day, you know. Um, but when I entered rehab, I was literally learning from scratch again. I was like a child. Um, I was still on a ventilator, so my first job was to learn to breathe unaided. Um, and from there was to begin the process of learning to use my hands that now functioned in a different way, um, my arms that functioned in a different way, to learn to balance without any core stability, all of these kind of things that, over time. Um, and the driving force all the time was that I recognise that environment plays a huge role in our success Um, and that is physical environment the people you have around you all of those kind of environmental factors and so I recognised that going back to college would put me in an environment that would be supportive of my growth but also that there would be support structures there um, if I was stumbling Um, and so we made that decision um, as a family that this was going to be my goal. This was going to be the driver. Um, and got in touch with my tutor and he was fully supportive. Um, now, there was a lot of hurdles to get through from I can imagine. me lying on my bed, learning how to breathe again, to 13 months later, ending up back in college, living away from home. Um and when I say it like that, it sounds like a miraculous recovery, you know, like arriving back in college 13 months later. Um, that sounds very straightforward, but the reality was, is I was so far outside my comfort zone when I did get back um, that it was 
it was pretty brutal to be honest. Um, at that time, I still did need support of of two people um, to, to get up in the morning. Uh, I hadn't learned the intricacies of how to build my routine, how to use the function I had to to um, get myself up and sorted, all those kind of little bits and pieces that I would learn over the ensuing years. But um, I would do well to get halfway through the day without falling asleep on a table because I was just so exhausted by the whole thing. But a funny thing happened when we got to Christmas that year I had survived and we sat around the table at Christmas and and nearly all of us cried because it was it was quite the journey to get to that point. Oh my, oh my, was it a journey? I was reading that about you about falling asleep in the middle of the day and mm. how it took an awful lot out of you initially. But you went on and drove on all the way and you wouldn't let anybody, anybody or anything really uh, set you back. Um, you, you went on and completed your studies in mm-hmm. Trinity and qualified. You did a master's, did you as well? Yeah, so um, in the years that, that passed, I, I graduated from my degree in pharmacy in Trinity. Um, at that point, I went on and did the, the intern year, which is a master's program. So I worked in clinical practice for six months and I did research for six months. Um, and then I sat the professional registration exams. Um, and during those years, we got up to all sorts as well. We made a, a documentary that would go on to win numerous awards. Yes. Um, and that was that's a story in and of itself. Um, um, I started speaking a lot, sharing my story, um, and that became a whole other venture for me and an avenue. Um, and I just learned a massive amount about myself, the people around me, and um, my fascination with sort of psychology of of breaking breaking through. Do you ever try to seek meaning to what happened to you? Wonderful question. I'm. For the second time at the moment, I'm actually reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, um, an amazing book uh, about his experiences as a trained psychiatrist who went through the concentration camps. And one of the things that he talks about, and I really buy buy into, is um, that every person in their life experiences suffering. Um, And you can label that in all sorts of ways. And he says that that man's responsibility or woman's responsibility, um, um, or however you identify, is is to seek meaning, seek to find meaning in one's suffering, and to take responsibility for the answers that you come up with. And that's really what gives our our struggles, our challenges, our meaning, our our any meaning, you know. Um, and I think that it's really important as well to understand, and this is a huge amount about what what I do now, is when I run well-being programs and, and things like that, we, we distill down and we look at people's values. We look at their belief systems and whether they're actually belief systems they chose for themselves or were they inherited from parents, people around them, and their environmental factors. We look at, um, uh, are they the decisions and choices they're making aligned with these belief systems and values and and all this kind of in, internal conflict that that arises when that's not the case um and then we start to understand more of the person and to define their why 
why is it that they are here? Why is it that they do what they do? And um, maybe they need to make some subtle changes in their life. Um, and when you have an understanding of what your why is, why you get up in the morning, why you go to work, why it's important for you to show up in certain relationships, different things like this, it's at that point when we know our why that it becomes easier to persevere in the face of the challenges that we face um, or the struggles that we have or adversities that, that arise in our life. And that that gives much more meaning and richness to to both the good times and the bad times because we can derive learning from it at that point. You mentioned why several times there. May I ask you why I've been checking you out on social media in the last few days? Why are you changing direction, so to speak? You're not entirely changing from what you've been doing, but you you said this little inner voice within you has spoken and you've listened to it. Mm. Yeah, so I think over the years I've really looked at myself um, and dug down the layers. And, and as I have and I've gotten to know more of what I'm about... Um, I have made adjustments over time and this is probably the the biggest um, move. I wouldn't say it's a bold move though because it feels very right. Um, so I qualified as a pharmacist um, over the years I've been speaking as I mentioned and and my fascination with, with personal development work um, was unending really um i just couldn't get enough of it um and and as that evolved over time i put different things in place to formalize it i i qualified as a life coach um amongst other things and the reason i got into pharmacy at the beginning was i was really interested between uh, the intersection between health and and serving people um and and I suppose that interest has evolved to a slightly different way now. And uh, whilst I'm still interested in health, I'm looking at it maybe from from a different angle, um, holistic health, um, and, and looking at what are the drivers that actually feed into the decisions we maybe make around our health and our well-being on a grander scale. And so coaching is an excellent way to, to pursue that. And so the decision that I made was to step away from what was full-time uh, role work working within, um, uh, well, a number of different fields from external in innovation to external affairs in, in some yeah. bigger health companies and to actually go out on my own as a, as a coach and a speaker. And to be honest, I'm more excited than I've been in an awful <laughs> long time. Uh, I feel that sense of alignment that I really mentioned and, um, and I'm very clear about the things that are important to me now and I'm doubling down on that. What a fantastic person. Some of the comments coming to us. Thank you so much. 086-1800-658 this afternoon for Jack. What a fantastic person you have with you today, Jerry. I can only say to him, it is a hard life, but well done, Jack, getting to where you are today. You are the champion, as Freddie Mercury sang with Queen many <laughs> moons ago. Thanks for that, Liz, and that boy today. Nicola Byrne from I Am Positive Mindset is on as well to us here to say, hey, so Nicola. proud that Jack is sharing his inspirational story in 
in Louth today. Tell him uh, not to dilly-dally. I'm starving. Looking forward to lunch with him later. Have you a date after this show? Oh, I might have a date. You have to be careful, I'll Nicola. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, my s- girlfriend won't be too happy with a message like that. I'm green in my eye here. I'm absolutely <laughs> green in the eye when I think, actually, I'm going to see Nicola later myself. I'll, I'll, I'll just <laughs> sidestep you there for a minute <laughs> because uh, very special event I'm going to tell them about later on today in the show this evening. Um, look, you're going in your road and I wish you well. And I want to tell you that this man is appearing this Saturday, the 12th World Mental Health Day at the O'Reilly Hall in UCD. It's a conference sponsored by AWARE. It's a huge event, I mean, uh, and it's entitled The Future of Depression and Bipolar Disorder. If you want to go along, there are tickets available. Uh, you can get them from awareconference.com, awareconference.com. And you are part of the big line up there on Saturday. It is Mental Health Awareness Week this week. We know that. Mental mm. Health Week, should I say. Yeah. You, you alluded to this earlier on in our conversation. You had dark times, but a particular dark time from when you left the rehab, was it? Yeah, so I suppose around that time, um, look, everything in my life had been um, had been turned upside down. And um, as I left the support structures of the rehab and, and moved home for a period, I live... Um, just near Dunchocklin, um, a little bit out in the country. Um, a lot of my friends who had been in college during the year and, and a lot of them were, were based around Dublin. I had that support structure while I was in rehab. Uh, a lot of them went away for the summer or were working down the country. And I felt and found myself quite isolated through nobody's fault. Um, but it was an important time on retrospectively I've found my, myself very isolated and for the first time um, the real gravity of my scenario uh, I had to sit with that and I had to reckon with that um, and like everybody I had the times where I I asked the question why me and that came up for a period and and then after a little while I said well why not me well why should this have happened to anybody else um, but that was a process, and at times I, I went to a very dark place. Um, toughest of all was probably the first time we went away as a family um, down to the west of Ireland. Now I'd spent my summers down the west as an instructor. This place represented freedom, excitement, and all my passions were were based on the water down there. And the first summer I went down, I was really just coming to terms with things. I had no idea how to explore these environments anymore. And I felt more trapped than I ever had in my life. Um, And I think in different ways, a lot of people will associate with that. In different ways, shapes and forms at different times of their life. Um, And what... The only consoling thing that that I could hold on to was that I had a vision for a better future and and Barack Obama talks about hope and in a time like that all you can do is to hope for that glimmer of light that will will pull you through. What I probably didn't recognise though during that time was all the progress, the little bits of progress that I was making, you know, the the micro choices that you make every day, the small choice to, to actually get up to to um, make an effort to go for a walk that day, to smile at someone, to smile at yourself in the mirror, um, and to get comfortable with that. Um, 
to, to stop that self-flagellation for a scenario in which you find yourself and actually to start seeking a positive way to move forward from it. And gradually, as I started to make these small choices to say yes rather than no, to say I can rather than I can't, and to fight on rather than to give up, things started to change. Now, initially, that takes a lot of strength and courage and perseverance to make those small choices, but it gets easier over time, and you build that muscle of resilience, and that's really what I'll be talking about this weekend. I am so excited and honoured to be a part of this amazing lineup. Um, a brilliant day, everything from lifestyle medicine um, being talked about to the gut, uh, brain axis, from from cradle to grave is really from the way they're going to be looking at it, discussing mental health across the spans of our lifetime. And I am just delighted to be part of the AWARE conference. You are such an addition to that conference, may I say, on that day. And remind you again, it's this Saturday, UCD, the O'Reilly Hall, kicks off early in the morning. Further details from awareconference.com. I'm going to finish this interview today by saying, I'll see you again. And I will never in my life complain about anything Ever, ever, ever more. That's all I can say. (laughs) It's all relative. Thank you very much. Jack Cavanagh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors annual sales event now on. The 2019 Renault Clio and Capture have never been so affordable with no deposit required. Call in today and save thousands at Blackstone Motors, Drogheda and Dundalk. You might remember a few weeks back I had a most enjoyable conversation about a very serious subject with columnist and broadcaster Barbara Scully. She told us about her diabetes diagnosis and it was really serious but my God was she tackling it head on. Well, the weeks have passed and we have an update. Barbara, so nice to have you back on the line with us. Thanks, Terry. Always good to talk to you. Now, you've written an update on your situation and I want to congratulate you again on marvellous writing and bringing us along and leading us along on tenterhooks until the punchline but let's start with this how (laughs) have you been getting on in general terms since we spoke last yeah no in general terms I mean after the initial kind of um, me going at it like a bullet a gate and kind of feeling in the initial two weeks after or three weeks after diagnosis that I had to understand all about it and I had to kind of you know, I was getting frustrated that it was taking me a while to get to grips with everything. Things have kind of reached a level, a level kind of place now where I kind of know what I'm doing. It's the whole nutrition thing isn't as complicated as I originally thought it was. Obviously, as I said to you before, I have to lose weight as well as losing sugar out of my diet, which, you know, adds an extra layer of kind of minding what I eat. Um but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I'm not going to say it's easy. It's, it's not easy. Um, I have to say, coming into the autumn, darker nights, weather's getting colder. I mean, autumn is all about kind of minding yourself and kind of that always to me meant food and kind of snuggling down on the sofa and kind of not moving. So, um, I'm finding that a little bit of a challenge at the moment. But, you know, I'm still, I'm still motoring along. And the good news is that I'm losing weight and, um, slowly but surely. Um, and as I said to you, before you know this is like the proverbial dog like it ain't just for christmas this is for life so um i'm still i suppose in my head getting into terms with that that this is the way it's going to be not that but i can have treats every so often but it would be really only every so often 
that's what I wanted to say to you. You know, you write about your love of ice cream, your yeah. treats, uh, yeah. the jelly with the granddaughter. Yeah. Is it a complete blanket? No. And alcohol. I did, did I ask you the last time, do you enjoy a drink at table? Well, actually, yeah, I've had a very long, very, very happy relationship with alcohol. <laughs> Stretching back over the decades, me and alcohol have had loads of adventures together and lots of positive, happy experiences. I actually ditched alcohol about two, two and a half years ago. I'm going to sound like such a train wreck. <laughs> I ditched alcohol about two years ago, two and a half years ago because of migraines. Um, and I found that they were, you know, if I drank so much as even one glass of wine, I was getting a headache the next day and chances were that headache would tip into a migraine and I was losing maybe two days, which just wasn't worth it anymore. And in actual fact, looking back now, the giving up alcohol was a good preparation for the giving up lots yeah. of other things that <laughs> yeah. I like. I'm going to sound like the most joyless soul on the planet. You know, I get invited out for I get invited out for dinner and I go, you know, yeah, no, I don't drink and then I'm a vegetarian and now like I don't have sugar or desserts either. But um anyway. Um, yeah, so the so alcohol I more or less gave up. Now, having said that, now that I've given up everything else basically, I have discovered a love of gin and I will have a one gin in the evening. Not every evening, but if I feel like a drink Wood jid and slimline tonic is okay, but basically I don't really drink. I think you'd be the most lively, sober host <laughs> that anybody could ever have uh, uh, to be invited to your house or to go to somebody else's house as a party <laughs> participant as well. So I, I really mean that. But here, uh, look, this is the this is the the punchline that I mentioned early on here. Everything going well for you. You're being mighty good, as you've told us there. Yeah, but. You were driving, and you know this eyesight thing. You said to me the last day that your eyesight had improved immeasurably. But yeah, I was I was driving one day, and this was about ten days, two weeks maybe after diagnosis. I was driving in the car one day, and I suddenly realised I, I was having difficulty reading road signs until I was right near them. And I've worn glasses ever since I was in my thirties, and I thought maybe my glasses are dirty. Kind of came home. And forgot about it. And then that evening I was watching television, which is something I would wear my glasses for, have my glasses on my nose. And I suddenly realized I couldn't actually read the menus on the telly anymore. And that gave me an awful fright. And I said to my husband, holy God, it's like as if I picked up somebody else's glasses. Like my glasses just are not working for me at all. And in actual fact, I, you know, I thought I can, I think I can nearly see better without them and I can't see at all without them. But anyway, uh, long story short, I, um, I thought at first, because my doctor had put me on statins for my cholesterol, and I thought at first it was them, and I decided to ditch the statins. But when I rang my doctor and told him, he said to me, look, I think it's more likely to be bleeds behind your eye. And that frightened, that was way more frightening than the diagnosis of diabetes, because my mother has had bleeds behind her eye, and she's not a diabetic. Uh, but she's at least behind her eye related to a heart problem for the last 10 years. And she's su- subsequently lost the sight in one eye. So I thought, oh, that's it. I'm now, you know, I've gone hell for leather into diabetes and now I'm losing my sight. Um, and my doctor said to me, you need to see an optician fairly soon. So I had to wait for 48 hours before I could get an appointment. And in those 48 hours, I cried more. Th- and I didn't cry when I got the diagnosis, but I absolutely, I was terrified Anyway, long story short, down I went to the optician and my doctor said, make sure they do the whole full bells and whistles. You need your back of your eye photographed and the whole health of your eye looked at. So they did all of that. And the good news was there was no sign of any bleeds at the back of my eye. My eyes looked quite healthy, so that was great. But the amazing news was that my eyesight had improved. And according to my optician, uh, my, my, my new prescription is roughly about 50% 
of what it used to be. Wow. So my eyesight, by dropping sugar so quickly out of my diet, my eyesight did um, improve again. Now, I've, I'm aware that it'll possibly wobble a bit until I kind of get completely, my blood sugar is completely under control. But at the moment, yeah, I'm still wearing glasses now that are only half the strength of the glasses that I wore a month ago, which is incredible. And it was a great boost because it made you feel that you know, your body, now having said that, I know what some of the damage diabetes can do is isn't is irreversible. But at the same time, your body wants to be well. Your body wants things to, to work right. And if you work with it, it kind of understands what you're doing and it'll give you back little gifts like this. Um, so, yeah, it was it was um, it was a huge relief. It was an expensive lesson, but it was I had to get new glasses and new sunglasses. <laughs> But it was uh, it was an enormous relief, huge relief. It is all good news with you. And I know you say you had to outlay, but look at this. You're half strength and you're seeing better than ever. The other thing is, you've been to the diabetes clinic. You're going to yeah. get a full retinopathy uh, very shortly as well. And tell me about this blood sugar monitor. Is it your best friend? My blood sugar monitor is my best friend because that really helped me to understand and continues to help me. I take my blood sugars in the morning when I get up and I take them in the evening before I eat dinner. And it just helps me to understand the relationship between diet and exercise and blood sugars. Um, And that's outside of kind of weight loss or anything like that. So in other words, my best blood sugars will normally be when I've done a fair bit of exercise the day before. And obviously when when I haven't been bold, like the day I went into the utility room and snuck some chocolate thinking nobody would see me. And I woke up the next morning, did my blood sugars and they were high. And I went, oh, so I now have somebody who's going to telltale on me all the time. Because it's all very clever. The, The monitor that you get syncs up to an app on your phone. And then I can send my results every week to the diabetic nurse in the diabetic unit in St. Michael's Hospital. Um, so that's, that's, it's very, it's very useful. And actually, yeah, I've become very, and I'm kind of curious all the time to see how my blood sugars are and then thinking back on what I'd eaten and how much activity I'd had and, and working out the whole relationship. You know, it's like a kind of a, an equation, if you like. But there is one thing that I think is very important. And actually, since I spoke to you last, Jerry, and, and I've, I've, you know, as I say, I've written another update for the Indo, and I'll have another one coming actually next Monday as well. Um, one of the things I think is terribly important is I've been contacted, and I think I mentioned this perhaps to you before, I've been contacted by a lot, particularly of women who've said, you know, you could be telling me my story. And I think it's, you know, when I describe my lifestyle as it was, um, and I think it's really important, and I may not have kind of really stressed this, is that if you are somebody whose lifestyle was like mine, which was hugely comfortable, hugely enjoyable, didn't involve any exercise unless I, you know, had to, um, and involved a fair degree of comfort eating and just being kind and nice to myself. And if you know you're not fit and you know you're kind of overweight, and particularly if that weight is around your middle, we really strongly advise you go and get a blood test. Because if diabetes goes unchecked for a number of years, which it can do, because you don't really have any very strong symptoms that would make you go to the doctor necessarily. So if you have diabetes that you've had for years and it is unchecked, it can do damage to your organs that isn't fixable yes so i would say to anybody if you think you're unfit if you fit the profile um and certainly if you have a family history i would highly recommend just go down to your doctor and get a blood a blood test and just make sure that 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 uh, that you're not either pre-diabetes or diabetic and if you are it's not a disaster but the sooner you're diagnosed the less damage can be done and that's really important a really important message i think 
I think that's just so special that you say that today. And if you're listening and you fit the bill there, go and just have that simple blood test done. It's uh, not a big issue at all. And you'll be the better for it. We promise you could be fine. But if there's something, they'll pick it up. Do you know what I'm thinking here, Barbara? Mm, mm. You're heading for poster girl status. (laughs) Well, I left girlhood uh, behind a long time ago, but thank you very much. But it's important, I think, that, you know, because when I got diagnosed initially, I thought, oh, diabetes, walk in the park, that's grand, no sugar, I can do that, it's fine. But it's actually more than that. It's about, it's about totally changing your lifestyle. And, you know, in one sense, I'm not glad I have diabetes, but I'm glad I got a kick in the ass that has made me take my health more seriously than I had been taking it. Because as my GP said to me, you, he looked at me straight in the eye and he said to me, you were getting away with it for years. In other words, I was getting away with it. My unhealthy lifestyle. And I mean, I wasn't drinking bottles of Coke and eating a Chinese takeout every night. Uh, But I did have a sweet tooth. I was eating portions that were too big, which I now realize. Um, And I wasn't doing any exercise. And I knew, as an awful lot of people know, in the back of your head, you go, yeah, I'm actually not that fit. I knew I wasn't that fit. And I kept saying, I'll do something about it. I'll do something about it. I'll do something about it. And I didn't do something about it. And now I have to do something about it, which is great. And I, you know, I can and I can I can I can fix this to to a large extent. But as I say, it's being in denial is dangerous. And I was in denial and being in denial is dangerous because if you know you're unfit, you could have diabetes and you could have it for a decade without knowing about it. And that's where you could walk yourself into trouble. Can I say, finishing today, that this is just the end of instalment number two from Barbara Scully. (laughs) We'll be back with part three. She's writing about it in the Irish Independent next Monday. You can follow her there. I just admire you so much. And really, uh, you know, we often hear about diabetes and we bring on experts and we talk to others. But what you're doing is just invaluable and brilliant, may I say. You're very kind. I always love talking to you. You always cheer me up now, and It's a great boost to my self-confidence. So thank you for all of that. Not at all, Barbara. Keep on trucking. Enjoy the new eyesight and the good lifestyle. And we'll catch up with you again in the near future. Thanks a million. Thanks, Jerry. May I remind you of a wonderful event happening tonight in the Westcourt Hotel in Drogheda. It starts at half past seven. It's under the auspices of Network Ireland Loud. It's called Finding the Eye in the Storm. It's a tenor in and all proceeds go to So Sad. But what a lineup this evening. Dr Sabina Brennan is there. She's the keynote speaker. And the panel includes Nicola Byrne. I mentioned her a while ago from I Am Positive Mindset. And Lisa Dunbar, a nutrition and health coach. And I'll be there as well to facilitate the panel discussion afterwards but it's uh, particularly aimed at this week mental health week and really the lineup tonight is fantastic and if you can get along you'll be supporting so sad and i mean you'll go away with lots and lots of information and new ideas and uplifted from this uh, very special evening that's tonight in the west court hotel at half past seven everybody welcome louise and myself have a date well, we've several of them, really, don't we? We have dates all the time. 365 of them. 365 is right, mostly, but... You have more of them because <laughs> I don't want any of mine. Let me tell you what we're talking about. They're probably out there saying, what the hell are that pair going on about? Do you know the little calendars, folks, that you have on your desk that you change the date? Well, you're supposed to change the date. Each, useless things. Don't you be laughing. Each day. And, you know, there's a little saying on the day. You have today's. What does it say on today's? Have you got it there? The one on the bottom, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people who are late are often happier than those who have to wait for them. Isn't that correct? No. When you think about it, the people waiting for somebody 
are annoyed or flustered, but the late person generally comes in and, well, they're late, but... <laughs> sometimes, you know, you're stuck behind traffic and you're all frazzled too. And you'd be apologetic, would you? But mostly, mostly people, there are people who are known for their lateness yeah. in life. You know that and it doesn't frazzle them. I think that saying today is, is quite on the I mark. I heard a great one the other day that um, it just showed a meme. I think I saw it and I said, I'm so sorry I'm late. I got here as soon as I felt like it. <laughs> I love it. I love that. I love that saying. But those little sayings are back to the calendar. The little sayings on them. Some days they're after, other days, well, you just forget about them. Yeah, but you but can change them to what you want. Do them I to change be. them? Do I change that little calendar every day? <laughs> yeah, yours and mine. I change my little desk calendar every single day. But when you check Louise's desk, well, <laughs> what, what are we in now? The 8th of October, it could be June. <laughs> it was June and I went to look for it. And I went, <laughs> no, hold on. It, it could be June. And, and then I brought it up to date a few weeks ago. And I, I brought it. I keep, you see, what I do is I change mine every day. And then after a few days, I look at Louise's because I'd be generally in ahead of her. And I say, in the name of God, we look at that one's calendar. And I pull the days off and bring it up to date. But you never noticed. It was a couple of weeks ago. I kind of looked over and I went, it's been changing the dates in my calendar because the last time I looked was September but the date said something like the 21st of April or something like that. I had never noticed. Jerry had been changing the calendar on my desk for months. Months and months and she never noticed. The way she said that there was like the three bears. Who's been changing my calendar? Anyway, uh, this morning, let me tell them I came in and I said, well, it's bad scrams to her again. Look at that little calendar. Now, maybe I'm obsessive. I probably am obsessive with a lot of things. But I changed the calendar up to the 8th of October, which we've just read the little verse from. So we were getting ready for the show. And the next thing I see is our Louise ripping the days off the desk calendar. By the mile. By the mile. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And she stopped. What? And I said, I brought that up to date today. And when she looked, she was ripping all of October <laughs> to get to Here the was 8th I of thinking November. I was doing the great thing. <laughs> to like compress you, Jerry. And I just uh, must be about two weeks out of date at this stage. And I just rip, rip by the reams. <laughs> so now she's ahead of herself. So I won't have to touch the calendar for a couple of weeks at this stage. They are useless though, Jerry. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. shall I look at their, the dates there and shall we have, I have calendars. I have Kylie beside me. Sure, I've got Kylie always beside me and I always make sure the date's right on that calendar. But besides calendars, I'm like that in a way. I like things in their place. Hmm? You know, I, I just... What's the word I'm looking for there? What am I? Am I obsessive? Pernickety. Pernickety. Pedantic. Pedantic. Annoying. <laughs> Precise. <laughs> many, many words. No, there is a word I'm looking for. I can't think. But I am a bit obsessive in a way because I'll tell you, I don't like doors being left open in your house. Are you an open or closed door person? Open. I'd be say. closing every door after you in the house. Do you leave the milk out of the fridge or put it back in? No, I put it back in, but if I'm having a cup of tea, like I might leave it out for five minutes. I don't leave it out altogether, but like, you know, I'm not one of these people that just whisk it off for the minute to just pour it and put it back in. Do you leave in. the butter open if you butter bread or put your margarine or your flour on it? Do you leave it open? No, but I am kind of guilty of sometimes crumbs in the butter. Mm. Mm. What about bread? You know bread, people who rip bread open and don't, I like to open bread in a neat fashion that you can fold it back and keep it fresh. Yeah, but it's very hard to do. In fairness, now you nearly uh, need. Are a you lesson. Louise or Miriam? Who am I talking to here? <laughs> I think you two have an awful lot in common. But I generally follow her around the house, putting the milk back in the fridge, tidying up the bread, putting the butter back. Should I just leave it and I'd let say, everything go to pot? Would it drive you mad if you did? Would yeah. you like literally have yeah. to kind of go back and? Do yeah, it? yeah, have to go back. Have and to go it, back and do it. Does it annoy Miriam? 
doing that. <laughs> no, no, I, I, it just it, no, no. It does. She doesn't even see it. She doesn't know what happens. It's like <laughs> you in the calendar. <laughs> it's the same thing. Maybe she does that now deliberately. To yeah, know, I'd yeah. say she does it now at this stage just yeah. to give me the two fingers. Yeah. Mm, I'd say there could be something in that, all right. There might be, a, you know, getting to a bit of logic there for and sure. What do you do that annoys her? Oh, I'm sure loads of things, but we're not talking about it today on LMFM. Let's <laughs> move on immediately. I am, you know, my little book that Sarah gave me for Christmas, Mr. Perfect. It's up in my desk. I think there was a hint in that for my daughter as well, but there you go. I will ask her. I, I'll actually come back on this. I'll say to her, what about me? You know, annoys you. Well, I well I do that, and I come back. To be fair, we have to balance things outrageously. But it can't be that. just that you're following her around the place. Too. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 no. It won't be yeah. that. I can assure you. <laughs> Anybody like that out there? Are you? Are you someone who just sails through and leaves everything? Are you like me? Do you like it in your place? If anything to say on this, should we always love to hear from you? We know you're there. Send us an old tweet or a an Insta or a Facebook or. Text or Do you WhatsApp. Like desk calendars. Oh eight six eighteen hundred six five eight. Do you change the desk calendar? Yeah. What do you like? Yes, Beyonce and Crazy in Love on late lunch this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Paddy's been on to say, Jerry, I would love to see your fly fishing boxes. Do you know the flies that I fish with, Louise? They're all in boxes, you know, and. They are, Paddy. I'll bring them in and show Louise tomorrow. I must take a picture of them. The flies are all in order. <laughs> They're not, are they? They're what all... about your angling gear when you get back? You know? Oh, yeah. I'll, I have to actually tackle it now and tidy it up. But generally, I keep it tidy. I've won. Yeah. Did you not tell a story once about you traipsing through your mother's house years ago with something? And your mother was there sitting and having tea with somebody? Yeah, that was maggots. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Perfection is now gone. <laughs> You're right, Paddy. Me fly, but I'll bring in actually, I'll put it up tomorrow. I must post a picture of it and show you a picture. Me flies are all in lines <laughs> and in orders. You're right, and other fellas have them everywhere and they're all over the place. Yeah, Paddy, I think it's me now. I'm beginning I'd have to, to just go in now and for, just I'm, rustle in all of those just to mix them up. I'm going to see somebody about this. Yeah, like a Christmas game. <laughs> oh, my God almighty. There you go. <laughs> anyway, up next on Late Lunch, we're going to chat about a serious matter. Derek Pepper is with him. You've met him before on the show. He works with Shine in the Northeast. And, you know, again, the focus this week is on mental health. And it's the patient and the person living uh, with this situation. But what about their nearest and dearest, their partners, their wives, their husbands, their close family? How do they fare out in a situation where somebody is in real difficulty and trying to work their way through this? We're going to chat about it next. Living with a mental health problem is not easy for the person themselves, but it's also a trying time, to say the least, for immediate family. For the next while, we're going to focus on the people who lived with loved ones going through a mental health issue. Derek Pepper is Regional Development Officer in the Northeast region with Shine, and he joins us again on Late Lunch. Derek, it's good to see you. Thanks very much, Jerry. Good to be back. I should nearly put you in the calendar for this time at least once a year, but you are so welcome, and I always enjoy having a chat with you. You know, the focus is on mental health again, we say, all this week. And uh, primarily, you know, the support, uh, the help all around the persons or persons going through the situation. But am I right in saying that sometimes the loved ones, the nearest and dearest, are the forgotten? 
Very much so. And I think we just have to acknowledge that as clearly as you've put it. And that is very much the feelings that loved ones have. Because a lot of the time, and rightly so, the focus is on the individual who is unwell. You know, if we know that somebody has experienced some sort of mental health difficulty, naturally enough, we will always inquire and say, well, how is Johnny or how is Jenny getting on? But very seldom will people actually turn to Johnny's mother or father and say to them, well, how are you managing? all this. How are you feeling? How are you getting through it all? Uh, Husbands and wives, equally so. Nobody ever really asks them, how are you dealing with this? How are you feeling as a result of it? And we have to remember that when you're trying to support somebody through any type of illness, be it a physical illness or a mental health difficulty, it does take a real toll on family members who have to sacrifice a lot. When you think about all the various different aspects of life that they have to sort of give things up on, like employment, for example. They have to find themselves, you know, running out of jobs to try and meet appointments or to bring their loved ones to different places. Uh, They have to give up their social lives in many respects as well because maybe they used to like going out for a drink on the weekend or going for a coffee on a Thursday morning. Suddenly they find they can't do these things anymore. And of course what also happens with relatives and particularly I suppose with mothers and fathers is that sense of guilt and the sense of responsibility that comes into the equation. And in many ways, when mothers and fathers feel guilty because their son or their daughter has a mental health difficulty, in some respects, they stop living because they focus all their energies on their loved one. They want their son and daughter to get buried or, to, or excuse me, to get better. Yes. Um, and they put their own lives on hold. And it's amazing. I spoke to one gentleman a few years ago and, and he really summed it up amazingly for me. This was a man in his 70s. And he said, Derek, he says, you know, he says, I've been supporting my son who's now coming on 50 years of age for the best part of 30 years. And he said, back then when it first began, he says, myself and my wife, we were so determined to make sure that our son was going to get better. He said, it was as if we hit the pause button on life and we focused all our energies and all our efforts in making sure that he was going to get better. Now, he said, we had dreams and ambitions and things that we wanted to achieve. We had ideas of what we were going to do in retirement and so on. And he said, last year, my wife passed away. And he said, for those 30 years, our whole energy and focus was on our son. And he said, I don't regret any of that. But he says, the part that I do regret is that we stop living. And he said, now, he says, I don't have the opportunity to pursue those dreams and goals that myself and my wife had because she's no longer here. And he said, I'm having this chat with you today. And I suppose essentially at that stage, we were talking about that process of letting go of the individual, encouraging the individual with the illness to be independent, uh, to live their own life, and in doing so, allowing relatives to live their lives. And this gentleman at that stage was saying to me, he says, I wish I realised this 20-odd years ago. Oh, Derek, that's one of the saddest stories I've heard in a while. It's difficult, and it's very typical. And I suppose maybe a lot of relatives listening in this afternoon will say, I I can relate to that. I can relate to that sense that through my own sense of guilt and responsibility, that I feel that I have to become a martyr, I have to stop living and focus all of my energy on my loved one. But in doing so, I suppose what can be created is a very dangerous dynamic whereby we create a dependency within our loved one for us. So our loved one becomes very used to us cooking the dinners and washing the clothes and basically doing everything for them to an extent that maybe isn't necessarily required. And sometimes it's difficult for parents to let go 
to appreciate that I've done all I can do and maybe now I need to take that little step back and encourage my son or my daughter to start doing these things for themselves. And I suppose that's one of the messages we try and get across to relatives with a lot of the work that we do in Shine. And indeed, I suppose we we do have a new initiative at the moment which is based in Dundalk called Exploring My Way, which is a monthly programme for 10 months where we explore all of these different situations that relatives experience and look at that journey of recovery, but not recovery for the person with the illness. We look at recovery for the relatives. And Miles, that might sound a little bit strange to some people. Relatives need to explore their own journey of recovery when they're supporting somebody with a mental health difficulty. You mentioned uh, that people have guilt. You have the worry factor as well. You know, when somebody's unwell, what are they going to do? Where are they? Do I know where they are? Do I have to be in touch with them all the time? But you're sending out a clear message today that there needs to be boundaries set, that there needs to be... Um, a life lived from that story you told me a moment ago. Exactly, exactly. And I suppose one of the things we're all very conscious of is that when we talk about recovery for a person with a mental health difficulty, there's always an element of risk involved in recovery. And when I talk about risk, I'm talking about the risk of relapse. So when a loved one, let's say, has had that experience of depression or bipolar disorder, whatever it might be, and perhaps they talk about returning to education or returning to employment or getting involved in a relationship, To the other family members, this can seem like a very risky thing to do because the family members become worried. They think, well, if that doesn't work out right, will you relapse? Will your mental health suffer? So sometimes the approach is to protect the person from these things by saying, well, maybe you're not ready for it yet. Maybe we look at that at some other stage in the future. And for the time being, we'll all just sort of live life together as a family and we'll focus all our energies on one another. But as we all know, that's not real life. That's not, as human beings, how we manage. We all enjoy our families. You know, if we're fortunate enough to come from a loving family, we love to spend time with our families, but we also like to have time to ourselves. And we also like to have time to invest in employment and education and social networks. So regardless of having a mental health difficulty or not, it's important that each and every one of us as human beings have those opportunities to explore all of those things. So for a person with a mental health difficulty, it's important that, yes, they take those risks that risk that, okay, maybe if I get involved in a job again, it might not work out. That's okay. If it doesn't work out, that's all right. It's not the end of the world. And it's important that relatives hear that as well. Because once a person with self-experience begins to to live the life that they want to live, relatives then have the opportunity to start re-exploring their own lives as well and developing those social lives again, their professional lives. Everything comes into contention. Financial matters as well. You know, all of these have to be considered. The context we've been talking about up to this is where everybody accepts that there is somebody who has a mental health issue and there are others around them trying to support them and do the best they can. But what about if you're in a situation where somebody clearly has a mental health issue? They won't accept it. They won't accept your help and they won't go for assistance either. How do you deal with that? They are very difficult situations. And I suppose with the best will in the world, we can never change somebody or make somebody do something that whilst we know it might be the best thing in the world for them, uh, we can't make somebody do something that they simply don't want to do. In a situation like that, if you're a relative and you're trying to support somebody with a mental health difficulty and they won't accept that reality, they won't engage with treatment and supports, 
the first thing you have to do is really look at yourself and ask yourself, well, what support do I need? I need some help. I need somebody who's going to listen to me. I need somebody who's going to maybe guide me to a certain extent. So it's important for relatives in those situations to reach out for the help and the listening ear that they need. What I will also say is we can never give up. You know, there's always hope and there will always be the chance that that person eventually will realise what they need to do. And it's amazing through discussions I've had with people who've had self-experience of a mental health difficulty for many, many years. And they will all say the same thing to me. They'll say, you know, my parents, my doctor, my nurse, everybody could scream at me until they were blue in the face telling me what I needed to do. But it was only when I realised for myself what I needed to do that I made the essential changes. And sometimes it is through relapse that people realise what they need to do in order to confront the issue that they're dealing with with their mental health and to engage with the treatment that they need. And for a lot of the time, relatives will do everything to try and prevent relapse in those situations where they're working with a relative who just won't accept the reality of the situation. So because of that, mum and dad will do everything for that person. You know, they won't encourage that person to go to work. You can have somebody in their 30s or 40s still living at home because mum and dad accept that, well, okay, we know that if Johnny or Jenny went outside, they may not be able to manage on their own. So we will take care of them. And to a certain extent, it sort of enables the individual to maintain that position because they're protected. Nothing really bad is going to happen to them. Whereas if we then accept that, well, okay, you have the right to take that position. You have the right to say, well, there's nothing wrong with me and I don't need medication. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we have to look after you then. If you're saying that everything is okay, well, then you should get your own accommodation. You know, you should be independent. You should go and look for work and we can't support you financially. And through those tough realisations, when maybe things don't work out for the person, that's when they begin to realise that, well, hang on a second, maybe there is something here that I need to take responsibility for and I do need to reach out for help. So, as I said, it's only really when the person realises for themselves that there is a situation that they will then reach out for help. And in doing so, that's going to benefit the family members as well. So I suppose for the family members, it really is a case of trying to not become the protectors, not become the rescuers, to try and maintain that normal position. Well, if everything is okay, well, then you don't need to live with us. You should have your own accommodation. You should be looking for a job. You should be engaging in education and you should have your own income. And that shouldn't be coming from us. Can I ask you something just occurs to me here in the context of carers? You talk about Mm. caring and family members caring. You know, the way you have carers for people with physical issues and that. um, Is this designated under the same umbrella? Are the carers designated to care for people who have a a long term mental illness? I suppose a lot of the time it really just falls down onto family members and family members are reluctant to define themselves yes. as being yes. a carer because mm. most family members are still people who are out at work. You know, they have jobs to take care of. They have other children that they need to be able to tend to as well. And, you know, when I talk about children, I'm talking about adult children as well. It's amazing how this situation can affect an entire family dynamic, whereby you have other children, if there's maybe two, three, four children in a family, 
and mum and dad are putting a lot of attention and focus on one of those children, the other children can feel alienated. You know, they can feel that, well, nobody is asking me how my day went. Nobody's asking me how I got on in school or college or in a job. Or nobody's asking me about my children. It's amazing even as adults, you know, sometimes children, adult children, can still sort of feel that. And they feel, well, all the attention is on Johnny and there's nothing on us. So... I suppose family members are reluctant to identify themselves or to find themselves as carers. They accidentally find themselves falling into that particular role, so they do. And particularly with parents, they don't question it because as a parent, they feel, well, that's my responsibility. It, it, all I want to do is do the very best for my child, doesn't matter what age they are, and I will give anything to make sure that my child is happy. So to a certain extent, family members don't regard themselves yes. as carers. They just fall into that role. Yeah, and inevitability really about yeah. it when you describe it there. Now tell me again, come back to this, because you did touch on it for a moment at the start of the discussion there about this programme. And this this is aimed at, I'm sure people who are caring and in this scenario mm. all day, every day, they probably think at times they're alone. Completely, you know, and I suppose a lot of people think that there are no supports for me. As a relative, there are no supports. There's nobody to listen to me. And most of the time, it is just a listening ear. It's amazing the amount of times I've had a discussion with somebody maybe for an hour. And at the end of it, they'll say, that was amazing. Thank you very much. And the reality is I haven't really done an awful lot. I've just listened. Most people will come up with the solutions themselves. And that's why we've developed this particular initiative called Exploring My Way. It's a 10-month programme. And essentially, it's a bit like a peer support group with an educational aspect to it as well. It's specifically for relatives. So it's only for relatives who are supporting a loved one with a mental health difficulty. And it's focused on their recovery the recovery of the relative, giving them that opportunity to explore this whole notion of letting go of their loved one who has a mental health difficulty. And that doesn't mean abandoning them. We're just letting go of the reins a little bit. You know, encouraging our loved one to go and live the life that they want to live. But in doing so, giving ourselves an opportunity to hit the play button on life again and to start exploring those things that maybe we did sacrifice to a certain extent, like our professional lives, uh, our social lives, our own relationships and the challenges that caring for a loved one can develop within relationships. So being able to sort of explore those relationships again and life in general, just being able to enjoy life because we all have the right to pursue enjoyment in life, regardless of what challenges we're presented with. So over the course of 10 months we look at all of that the position of the relative and recovery for the relative and give them an opportunity as a, as a peer group as a group of relatives uh, to look at that from learning from a shared experience you could say now 10 months sounds a long time but you mm. don't have to be there every day for the no, 10 months no. no absolutely not it's one night once a month yeah, that's it. So it's ten nights over the ten months. Essentially, that's it. It's ten nights over the, over the course of ten months, and as I said, it's a peer setting. So relatives are coming in; they're meeting other relatives. First of all, realizing I'm not on my own. There are a lot of people dealing with very similar situations to what I'm dealing with at home, and then of course establishing friendships and networks of support. So it's not just about the interaction on the night. People exchange phone numbers. They talk to one another. They text one another, but. Over the course of the 10 months, we focus on a different topic each month. 
exploring all the various different avenues and routes of recovery for relatives. And we hope that at the end of that 10-month process, that those relatives will be more in tune with their own needs and what they need to enjoy life. Uh, And at the same time, accepting that, well, okay, I can still find time in my day to support my loved one. But what I also need to focus on is making sure that I am enjoying life and that I feel enriched and fulfilled by that as well. So we hope to achieve that over the course of the 10 months. So important because it's easy to become bogged down and I don't mean that in any bad way or worn out, burned out, you name it. But that is the reality. Yeah, that that is the situation. Now, how do people find out more about this Exploring My Way? Well, essentially, Exploring My Way is based in Dundalk. It's held in the Loud Leader Community Offices in Dundalk. It's on the last Tuesday of every month from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock. Anybody who wants to register for it uh, or to participate, if they just give me a call, my uh, mobile number is 86 852-5422 and they can email me at dpepper at shine.ie So anybody interested just drop me a line and then we can take it from there. And if you're in the Dundalk area, the County Museum, there's an exhibition going on at the moment, Dundalk Positive Mental Health called the Annual Art Exhibition and it uh, runs from it's on Thursday, it's just the one night is it? Sorry, I beg your pardon, it's this Thursday, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's this Thursday. Basically, the Dundalk Positive Mental Health Forum is a collaborative effort uh, involving a number of organisations working primarily in Dundalk. To give you just a a taste of the organisations involved, we've Dundalk Outcomers, we've Dundalk Counselling Centre, we've Tourist Support Services, we've the Suicide Prevention Services within the HSE, we've the Occupational Therapy Services in the HSE, uh, and also some members of the public as well, who've all come together because there was a realisation about six years ago in Dundalk that we did have a major issue around suicide and around mental health issues and we wanted to approach it in a very creative way and that's why rather than preaching to people and organising talks all the time we went down the artistic route so this Thursday night and indeed for the rest of this week we have an art exhibition in the Louth County Museum on Jocelyn Street in Dundalk it opens today it runs through right to the 12th of September Thursday night is our launch night the the launch of the exhibition begins at half six but crucially we have the staging of the theatrical production Cracks uh, from the Quintessence Theatre Company and that starts at half past seven. Now, it's free of charge, but there are a limit of 70 tickets. So anybody who wants to attend the play will need to be in the doors by about a quarter past six because it's first come, first served. You won't get a seat. That's a promise for sure. Just a question there. Is that course open to people outside of the Dundalk area? Absolutely. Okay, oh, yeah. so you if, can... if anybody's willing to travel, uh, it, it's open to anybody at all who wants to participate in it. Very important. Derek, you're a breath of fresh air and you're doing wonderful, wonderful work through Shine and through Dundalk Positive Mental Health as well. Uh, we wish you well with your uh, work and continued success to all of you there. Thank you for joining thank, me on the show. Much, Jerry, thanks. thanks, Derek. Now, late lunch, LMFM Radio, just heading towards news and sport at three o'clock on the show and afterwards. Yes, brace yourselves. He's with me. Do you know a fella called Jason Byrne? Yes, he's a comedian, he's a funny man and he's written a new children's book. It's a second, incidentally, but lots to chat to with Jason after news and sport at three. We were chatting about changing the days on the calendars earlier on and Breege has been in touch, sent us a lovely picture. What have you there, Louise? It's lovely. It says 365 days of love for my grandma. And there's no days on it, just dates. So you can use it every year, basically. And today's little verse is just verses. So today's little verse says, The history of our grandparents is remembered, not with rose petals, but in the laughter and tears of their children and their children's children. It is into us that the lives of grandparents have gone 
it is in us that their history becomes a future. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? So there's a little saying on that calendar every day and Breach turns it each day. For the last three years. And reads it. Yeah. Lovely. I like that. I, I like that. I'd like to read something every day. I've set little cards in my desk. Um, I, I, I can't think of They're inspiration cards, actually. And every morning I come in, I shuffle them and bring one to the top and read it. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. When I'm changing your calendar first, <laughs> then my calendar. I have a little routine. And I have a routine. I have a routine when I come in. You know what I mean? Plug in the computer, switch it on. Takes an eternity for it to get going. Um, and then I go and change your calendar, my calendar. Check the board for the running for today to make sure everything's there in the diary. Then I go to my little cards. I shuffle them up. I bring one to the top and I turn it over. And I read that inspirational Aww. little phrase every day. And I try to carry that with me through yeah. the day. Yeah. I just shuffle all the bills I have to pay. And whatever <laughs> one goes to the top, I, get, I pay that day. <laughs> well, we all sort to do that as well, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> but we are creatures of habit, aren't we? Are you a creature of habit, really? Would you, do you do the same things? Do you, yes. you park in the same place out there every day? Well, when you say park, you mean... At an angle. <laughs> throw yeah, at throw an the angle. car in somewhere. Louise parks at an angle, but she does park at an angle in the same place every day. Yeah, uh, I do know I am a creature of habit. And I park in the same place most days. Mm-hmm. I, I change some days. If there's somebody in my space, I go somewhere else. But uh, Everybody's creature habit. I think so, aren't we? We yeah. are. We like habit. We like certainty. We like routine. We don't like change. That's no. the biggest thing in life. Change is the most difficult thing to do and accept. And yet, it's the one certainty. Everything changes yeah. in life. Nothing is forever. And we must keep that in our minds. That's just the nature of this existence that we How put in so many years. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's a, it, it really is a fact. I was looking at, just uh, just an aside before we move on, I was looking at the OXO Cube thing. I think Seamus, was Seamus talking about it this yeah. morning? Christy, they were chatting about it, the OXO yoke and opening the OXO Cube. I, I better not talk about OXO to you, will I? Will yeah. I pass on that? Mm. I know you smash it. <laughs> That's what they were saying, yeah. They give it a bash and open it. You don't peel it anymore. Because it goes everywhere when you peel it. You know, the, the OXO Cube, but... Um, very, very intense flavour that definitely adds to your casseroles and stocks this and autumn and winter season. Just put it in. Did you ever try and trick somebody and say, here's coffee for you? Oh, it's did you do that? Cube. Did you? Yeah. Did you ever give someone an oxo for their coffee? Yeah. Oh! It doesn't taste bad. It's beefy, yeah. There's, there's, there's beef in that. There's body in that coffee, I'm sure they said. Did you ever put washing up liquid into anyone's tea or coffee? No, never. Did you? Yes. <laughs> That's why I never let you make me tea or coffee. And there was ructions about it. And a few weeks later, when I met them, I started singing, I'm forever blowing bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> they were on the day after I did that. <laughs> Let's move on on late lunch. Enough mirth this afternoon. Let's get serious. How could you get serious with Jason Bourne? You couldn't. He's with us next. He is one of our best. Yes, one of our greatest comedians. I just love him. Live at the Apollo. Ireland's Got Talent. Live on stage. And this man has no end to his talent. His second book has just been published. It's The Accidental Adventures of Onion O'Brien. And this one is The Head of Ned Belly. Jason Byrne. You're welcome to Late Lunch. Thanks very much. Oh, my God. It's amazing like how many accolades you can build up when you get old enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm like, four, like 47. <laughs> and it's like, um, it's like, it's amazing what you've done, but so many other people in the world have achieved so, so much more. Like, let's say Brunel, I think he died in his late 20s or something, but he invented suspension bed, bridges, sewers, boats, <laughs> steamboats, steam engines. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, we're not like the Victorians anymore. We're a little bit slower. So, in that sense, it's, uh, 
yeah, I'm having a great time. Oh, the children's books, writing them is great. You know what I mean? Really good. It's your second book, Jason, and it's illustrated yeah. by Oshin McGann, and that's a big link for us to draw to the McGann clan, the world famous. Oh, okay. I never knew that. Well, listen, he is definitely from Drada, Oshin. Yes. Yeah, and he is an amazing illustrator. And we've been doing children's book readings, you know, like three, four hundred kids in a room from all different schools. Now, that is a different type of entertainment, I can tell you. So the book is about a lovely little gang of kids called the Five O's. And it's a bit like a famous five thing, Hardy Boys, Adventure, mur- like not murder, sorry, but mystery. <laughs> mystery, they have to solve it now. So that's all really good fun. But when you're at the book launches, you know, you don't really read from the book because the children just want you to just interact with them. And that's what I've been doing and telling them about the book. And one of the kids in the, out of the five O's is called Kleena O'Hare and she's an inventor. She invents things. And I said to the kids, anybody here have, have has anybody here invented anything? And 360 kids put their hands up right now. <laughs> and one kid went, oh, I invented crisps and tomato ketchup. <laughs> and I said, you invented crisp and tomato ketchup? Like, that's what they invented ages ago. He goes, no, together, mixed together, right? Another one was, another kid said he invented the Titanic, which was great, but that make him over like a good, good over 100 years of age. And then another girl said she didn't invent anything, but she took her dad's car apart in the garden and put it back together again. So this is a fantastic imagination of our children. It's just brilliant. Ah, it's wonderful. I love working with them. And you've tapped into this. But here, come back to the origins of this book. It's called The Head of Ned Belly. Now, there's a clue... Oh, you love this. Yeah, there's a clue in this because it was a school trip. One of your school trips to Drogheda to see a saint. El Oliver Plunker. I mean, what a school trip that was because we came down and we seen Newgrange... And, you know, the Battle of the Boyne and all that stuff and everything. And the, the Hill of Tara, we went over there. And now he ends up going into the Sea Oliver Plunkett's head. We never heard of it. We're only little kids. We're only about like, 11, which is what these kids are in this. And we went in and all the teachers just stood outside smoking. And we were just sent into the church with the guide. And all you could hear around the, the whole head was, Oh, Jesus, it's real. <laughs> so... So, the, so the, the idea in my book is ca- it's called the head and head belly because they have a head like that in their school in a glass case because Oliver Cromwell chopped Ned Belly's head off in our fictional history in the book. And what happens is he has a hidden treasure and the kids go looking for it. But there's a teacher that turns up. He's called a Jackie and he's not right. He's some sort of villain. So they get mixed up with him. And they get mixed up with the guards, they get mixed up with the teachers, like there's loads of stuff going on. And Onion O'Brien, who's the main guy in the book, he leads the gang and he basically, uh, you know, try and coax, coax them on. And the other, part, the other kids in the gang are called Dallin, who's a real cool dude, Sive, kind of a tomboy, clean of the inventor, and Derek, who's Onion O'Brien's older brother, who doesn't want to be in the gang, but he is anyway. But it's a lovely read for like probably seven, eight year olds all the way up to the granddads. You know, that's me, Jason. I thought you were going to ruin me out there for a minute. Yeah. And, and, and I loved it. I loved it. I have to say it is for, for all ages. Yeah. So it really is. It's good, good fun. And there's a good bit of humour as well, because Onion and his sister Molly and the brother Derek live with their nan and granddad who are just stuck in the 80s, which is great. So there's no Wi-Fi. There's, uh, you know, top loader videos. And there's like uh, faxes and answer machines all over the place. <laughs> that's great. 
That's why I loved it. That's why I loved it because it brought me back. It really did bring me back. So it is for everybody. And I'll remind you again, it's called The Accidental Adventures of Onion O'Brien. And this one is the second book from Jason. It's called The Head of Ned Belly. Now, we'll come back to the book in a moment. There's a couple of things I want to talk to you about while I have the chance. Golf, do you remember you were here with me? Do you remember doing the, the, the crisp challenge with me here many years ago, tasting yeah. the new varieties of crisps? And you were telling me... Do you do remember that? And I remember it well. We'll always remember it here. But you were telling me then as well, you were into your golf. Have you progressed? Has the handicap come down? Are you still on the golf course? Oh, my God. So I haven't played in ages. And I went to Kilkenny Comedy Festival. Barry Murphy, who's like from Apre Match, said to me, do you want to come play golf in Mount Juliet? I went, absolutely. Went and played, had a great time. I thought, oh my God, I'm actually not too bad. I'm back, I'm back. Did pretty well. Do you know what I mean? I thought, it was a good bit over now, but pretty well for me. And then, the next, we went on the old hammer that night and Barry goes, you want to play again tomorrow? Went to, I went, we said, yeah, went to play again the next day and it was the worst game of golf I ever played in life. And I just, I put my sticks down again. <laughs> so you're in semi-retirement again. <laughs> Yeah, I just went on rubbish at this again. He'll be it's, back. I it's a promise. It's not like football or anything where you can kind of. It's just like if you if you if you're even out by a couple of millimeters, you're crap at golf all day. You know. Yeah, so that's the so, thing that wrecks your head about the game, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's it's a. I I think personally, only professionals should, should play golf. You know, because <laughs> fellas are out there buying the next driver trying to sort their death swing but it's, it's not their job it's their hobby but like you know and it's either that or you like basically you lose your husband to golf forever so you know you've got to be very careful which way to go you know? <laughs> it's an interesting take on the game I'm sure that many people can uh, associate with now tell me this because there is a little sadness Ireland's got talent it ain't coming back this year Jason yeah so it's, it's now it's not dead in the water so it's just it's been put on hold is what we were told and then Louis Walsh spread his wings and went back over to Britain to do X Factor, Celebrity X Factor or something. And Michelle Visage, who we're very proud of, has hit the dance floor and she is doing Strictly and she's nailing it. She's had two dances and she's got like scores of eights and sevens. Yeah. You know what I mean? So she's doing brilliantly and she's a strong favourite now. You know what I mean? Oh, and Jason. If she came back as a judge, I've got somebody sitting beside her. <laughs> and Denise and Denise did really well on Strictly years ago as well. Yes. So it's only me and Louis left trying to get on Strictly. The Maybe boys. I can go on. I can be Louis's partner. <laughs> that could work out. He's small oh, enough for me to like oh spin God. him around and catch him over the head like Dirty Dan. Oh, you're giving us nightmares now. You're bringing yeah. us back to Anne Widdicombe on Strictly Come Dancing and people like that. But look, I do agree with you. I've been watching it and I'm a big fan of Strictly. Michelle is nailing it every week so far. She's yeah. the dark horse, isn't she? She could win it, Jason. She could. Put the money on now, I'd say. Get the money on. Would you ever do it? Seriously, if they gave you a shout, would you give it a go, Strictly? I probably would, yeah. I mean, it's a good friend of mine in this year called Chris Ramsey. He's a really good comedian. Lovely yeah. fella. And... um it's quite funny, actually, because last year, Sean Walsh was in a video dirty with one of the dancers. Remember that? <laughs> yes. Right? And so this year, Chris Ramsey, it's so funny. Chris, they, they keep showing the camera Chris Ramsey's wife in the audience. They're going, and Chris Ramsey's wife is here. Here she is. This is his wife. And then they went to his house where his wife is. And where his wife works. His wife. Chris Ramsey's wife. Wife, wife, wife. Wifey, wife, wife. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be no courses strictly on Chris from what you're telling me there. That's no, for certain no this time. Way. Not at all. 
And I mean, well, that's, that's the other thing you could do with Paddy Paris. I think they're going to bet on who's going to help this man. There's more money. There's more money in that. <laughs> anyway, you're touring away in the UK and you're back to promote the book and life is good and you're going yeah. from strength to strength. And listen, I'll be in Drogheda in the New Year, so the tickets are on sale again. And in that kind of area, like Dundalk, Drogheda and all those places. Lovely. So I'll be at jasonborn.ie for those. Great Smash stuff. As well. And listen, maybe when you're round, you'd pop in again and we'll get another box ah, of crisps and we'll eat our way through them. I'd love to see our face with some cheese and onion in it. <laughs> The Accidental Adventures of Onion O'Brien, and it's not a flavour of crisp we're talking about. The head of Ned Belly is out. You'll love it. As Jason said, seven year plus, roughly, and for everyone in the audience. Jason Byrne, thank you for joining thanks me in late lunch million. today. Take okay, care bye, of yourself. Bye, bye. See you, Jason. He's some boy, isn't he? He really is. That's a lot in late lunch for this Tuesday afternoon. Have a lovely evening. Leave you in the company of Aha and take on me. See you tomorrow, one thirty. is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.